are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 22, 2024. I'm Darby Russell from Drake University. Here's our first story. Ragbri Sendoff, Glenwood Gets Ready. This story is by Joe Shearer. S-H-E-A-R-E-R. The image is of three bikers sitting together with their bikes, talking with beers in their hand. Community plans unforgettable event for visiting cyclists this July. Cyclists from across Iowa and the world will descend upon Glenwood this summer. The Mills County community will once again roll out the red carpet for the tens of thousands of bike riders as this year's starting point for Ragbri. We hope to throw them a great party and one they won't forget, said Janine Davis, executive director of the Mills County Chamber of Commerce. This year's RAGBRAI, short for the Register Annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa, begins in Glenwood on Saturday, July 21st. Last year, the race had about 20,000 registered riders, along with day rides who also took part. The ride didn't tally The ride tally didn't include people, accompanying riders, or the thousands who came to see them off. We are planning for 20,000 to 30,000 people. Davis said it is the largest organized bicycle ride in the world. The announcement of Glenwood's choice of this starting point came out on January 2nd at an event in Des Moines Moines organized by the Des Moines Register, which stages the 51-year-old annual tradition. The whole community was thrilled when it heard the news, Davis said. This will be the eighth time and the first since 2016 that Glenwood will be the starting point, she said. That ties Glenwood with Sioux City for having the most time selected for that honor, Davis said. We are are honored to have Rag Bry back in Glenwood, Mayor Angie Winquist said in a statement. While I know it is a large undertaking for everyone involved, this is a great opportunity to come together, showcase our community, and welcome all of our guests. Davis Davis agreed there's a lot of work that goes along with hosting so many writers. We're in the process of forming 20 local committees right now, Davis says. Each committee will oversee specific needs for the writers in the community, such as housing opportunity for the writers and staff, camping spots, food, and vendors to sign up, public safety, and more. The last time Glenwood was the starting point, about 400 people volunteered, Davis said. A couple preliminary meetings with RAGBRAI officials have already taken place to discuss camping and housing options. Davis said camping sites include Glenwood Lake Park, sports field on school grounds, and perhaps the Glenwood Resource Center, she said. A lot of people were open their homes for lodging, Davis said. Meeting with those officials are to take place every two weeks through July, followed by the local volunteer meetings, she said. A big part for the, a big party for the writers is set for Saturday, July 20th, she added. This event will be a great way to showcase the changing scene in Glenwood since 2016, Davis said. We've had reno- renovations, new businesses, new people moving here, she said. It could also bring economic benefits, particularly to small businesses, she added. It may... It may hard it may hard work getting everything set, but organizers will be prepared for the party. We're hoping for a positive impact for them, Davis said. We'll be a hundred percent ready.
Moving on to the next story, Schools Foundation Appoints Director by David Golbitz. The Council Bluff Schools Foundation announced Bridget Watson as its new executive director. We are thrilled, Foundation Board of Directors Chair Aaron Johnson said in a news press release Tuesday. Bridget's proven leadership and passion for our community makes her the ideal candidate to lead the foundation into its next chapter of growth and impact. We are confident that under her guidance, the foundation will continue to make a lasting difference throughout our school district. Watson previously served five years at the foundation's director of development. Bridget has demonstrated excellent leadership, strategic vision, and an ability to make meaningful connections within our community, Johnson said. Her efforts have enhanced the foundation's capacity to to support educational initiatives and programs within the school district. Prior to joining the foundation in 2019, Watson worked for seven years at Iowa Western Community College in a variety of roles, including Associate Dean of Pottawatomie, that is spelled P-O-T-T-A-W-A-T-T-A-M-I-E, Promise. I am deeply honored and excited to assume the role of Executive Director at the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation, Watson said in the release. Having been a part of this incredible organization for the past five years, I am aware of the vital role it plays in supporting our schools and shaping the future of our community. Watson said she's looking forward to collaborating with our dedicated team and partners to build upon our success and ensure that all students, families, and staff have the resources and support they need to thrive. Watson replaces Chris LaFarella, who resigned from the position in December to become the executive director of the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce, which now also operates the 712 initiative. Strong public schools are vital for a vibrant community and the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation plays an important role of supporting children, families, and staff of the district, LaFarella told the nonpareil in a text message. Bridget is an outstanding leader, and the Chamber stands ready to support Bridget and her vision for the Foundation. Council Bluffs Community School District Superintendent Vicki Morello commended Watson for her instrumental contributions to the success of the Foundation's events, including the annual Education is for Everyone Business Luncheon and the annual Cheers for CB Schools on the historic 100 block. I look forward to working closely with her and to building on the success of the foundation efforts to support our district staff programs and priorities, Marillo said in the release. Watson holds a master's degree in managerial communication from Bellevue University and a bachelor's degree in public relations from Northwest Missouri State University. Watson is an active volunteer in the community, serving on the Council Bluffs Planning Commission, Friends of Children's Square Board of Directors, Council Bluffs Guide of the Omaha Symphony Board, and the Council Bluffs Ambassadors. Watson is recognized by the Midlands Business Journal with 2023 20, 40 Under 40 honors. The next story is Iowa Western Eyes at 8 Cents Tax Increase by Scott Stewart. Trustees for Iowa Western Community College plan to set a preliminary budget next month that allows for a potential property tax levy increase. Iowa Western President Dan Kiney, that is spelled K-I-N-N-E-Y, said enrollment is up across nearly all categories, including regional states in Clarindia, Shenandoah, Atlantic, and Harlan. The top-line enrollment growth is, an est- is estimated to be in excess of 9% this year. 
A public hearing on the budget is planned Monday, March 11th at 2 p.m. at Iowa Western's Shelby County Center in Harlan. College officials caution that the budget picture, including the tax levy and tuition rates, isn't clear yet, but the state requires colleges and other public entities to craft budgets in accordance with the prescribed timeline. It is kind of a shot in the dark, Eddie Holtz, vice president of the of finance told the board of trustees at a meeting Monday. You're just looking so far into the future. The preliminary budget sets expenditure limits of about 64.3 million for the general funds, about 26.7 million for the plant fund, and about 5.8 million for the bond and interest payments. The tax levy would be capped at 1.4764 per thousand of taxable valuation for fiscal year 2025, which would reflect an increase of 8.676 cents, a little over 6.2% from the 2024 fiscal year. The major difference between the two years is the early retirement packages that we have, Holt said. The goal with an early retirement package is the funds that we save is exceeding what is spent throughout the period of early retirement. Earlier retirements approved last fall up to almost $0.16 per $1,000 of taxable valuation, Holt said, which is a one-time hit to the college finances that would be partially absorbed by increased revenue from property valuation increases and other factors. Kiney said his budget priorities are to avoid dramatic tuition increases and to show respect to the college's employees through their compensation. I feel very comfortable with this budget, Kiney said. Once the early retirements are paid off this next fiscal year, Holt said he expects to drop back to roughly 1.39 levy rate. However, because the college opted to prepay debts and has kept its levy flat, he said a bond issue would be possible without a tax rate increase. We would be able to do a bond issue of $55 million, and I'm using that number and still keep our levy, Holt said. We're being very fiscally responsible. Holtz brought up a potential future bond issue in the context of a new building for technology, logistics, transportation, and training programs. We're bursting at the seams in several of our programs, Holtz said. Building the new building would allow us to move programs to that, renovate space, and so forth. Moving on to our next story, Mistakes Make Muralist Different by David Goldblitz. Shortly after Danny Reyes moved with his family to South Omaha, one of his new high school friends asked him if he had ever done graffiti art. Reyes had become known as the guy who sketches, having started drawing when he was in grade school in Los Angeles. I noticed that people would hover around me when I was drawing, Reyes told the nonpareil. It became my way of being social with everybody and being able to talk and speak and get it out of my shell without really doing much but letting my hands do the work. Despite going up in L.A., a city with a robust and thriving graffiti art scene, Reyes had never tried his hands at expressing himself through the generally illicit art form. I was kind of scared, actually, he said. With the invitation to a nearby train yard from his friend, 15-year-old Reyes got his first experience with creating art on such a vast scale. I went with him and saw how they were doing it, Reyes said. I thought it was very interesting the way that they used the form of graffiti and stuff, so I started to do a little bit of that of what so I started to do a little bit of what I did mixed with their other stuff. But that was short lived. Raised by a single mother, Reyes was worried he would get into trouble and that his mom would have to pay to get him out of 
I cannot imagine getting into trouble and her having to pay out of her pocket for the damages that I've caused to the city. So I was like, oh no, my mom will kill me for getting caught doing this stuff. So I just didn't do it anymore, Ray said. I thought it was cool, but I didn't want to burn a hole in my mom's pocket with, you know, court fees and me going to jail and stuff because I damaged property. While Ray's chose not to partake in his friend's extracurricular art classes during high school, he began looking for bigger canvases for his work, not just train car-sized. The start. What I used to do was I'll pick up like doors and random pieces of boards that I'll find and I'll take it to the backyard and start painting on that stuff and sketching things and just practicing on a larger scale, Ray said. Ray's had a friend who worked in a custom sign shop where they would usually have a lot of material that gets thrown away at the end of the day, pieces of wood or plastic that had been cut away from signs and they were creating. He asked Ray's if he wanted to take some of the pieces home to see if he could paint them. I said, well, I am working on becoming a muralist, and that means that I need to work with any type of surface. So I started doing that, Ray said. I would paint on cardboard and stuff like that. And that still continues to this day. Like, if it's trash day and I'm driving around and I see somebody threw out something, I'm like, oh, I could paint on that. I'll pick it up and I'll paint it and I'll sell it. Cut to nearly 20 years later, Rise is 34 and painting has been more of a hobby for him while he holds down a steady job. He's married, he has kids, and he has a nagging question of whether he can make a living as an artist. I discussed it with my wife first and she said, yes, you can leave your job and you can try this out, but if it doesn't work out in the next six months, you need to get back to work. Ray said it was just something I needed to do. I needed to see if this is something that is for me. Ray started painting all the time. He would take finished pieces where crowds tended to gather and try to sell them. And he did. People would buy them for $100, $200. But while I was working on all of these paintings, at times, I would be like, what did I do? Oh my god, I'm crazy. Like, who just says I'm going to be an artist? Ray said. But then I would try to get myself out of that train of thought, and I would say, have faith in yourself, Danny. Ray's faith in himself unexpectedly manifested itself in his work. Shortly after he quit his job and started painting, during a drop in confidence, he took a brush, dipped it into a can of hot pink paint, and painted the letter F on his work. He would do this before going back to bed. So in the morning when I came back stairs to the basement to work on that painting, I would start thinking with that F means have faith in yourself. Have faith in yourself. It's gonna work, he said. One day, a client arrived to pick up a commissioned painting. The client asked if he could see Ray's workspace. When they got down into the basement studio, the client noticed the letter F on all the paintings and asked what it meant. Ray's told the client, who realized that the painting he just pursued didn't have a letter on it. He literally grabbed the painting and he put it back on the wall and was like, put that on mine, Ray said. He said, that's a cool story to have with your paintings. So now, I show people my paintings that you did for me. I'm going to tell people that story. Now Ray's paints the F on all of his paintings, and if he forgets, people have brought their paintings back to him so he could add it. It's not a Danny Ray's if it didn't have an F on it, he said. The mural. When Ray's was approached about de-signing and painting a mural on the back of one of the buildings that lined the First Avenue train in Council Bluffs, there was no hesitation. I was like, oh wow, that's so cool, Ray said. I would love to talk about I would love to do that. After taking a tour of the trail, 
Rays realized that one of the potential canvases sits across 2nd Avenue from Edison Elementary School. My kids go to that school, and my son, who's in high school, he went to Edison, and it's a connection there that I had, Ray said. I think it'll be cool if my kids come out of school and be like, hey, look, my dad did that, and that's me right there. The building Ray's chose sat at 2200 2nd Avenue, just south of the 1st Avenue Trail and to the west of Cochrane Park across South 22nd Street. To determine the subject of his mural, Ray spoke with a building owner who would have to okay the design. Because of his family connection to Edison, Ray's explained that he wanted to incorporate his kids in the mural, to which the property owner readily agreed. Ray's mural titled Empowering Youth for Global Change features four multiracial children playing dress-up. One boy is holding an electric drill. One boy is strumming a guitar. One girl is wearing a lab coat and holding a stethoscope, and one girl is holding a firefighter's helmet. I asked them, hey, if I was to paint you as being something, what would you be? Ray said, and my daughter, Elena, was like, I want to be a fireman. And then my other daughter, Aurora, said, I'm a doctor. And then my son, Elliot, was like, I would be a construction worker or something like that. The fourth child is Ray's oldest, Elijah, for whom Ray's has once, had once bought an electric guitar. He's actually older than the other kids, but I took a picture of him when he was five and I did his hair like it is now so he could fit the age group that was up there, Ray said. The style. Ray said that when he was designing the mural, he made it a little more polished than his usual artwork, which is often a little messier with plain spatters and drips. I just hold myself back a little bit from doing what I do with random splatters and stuff, but I kind of let my style bleed through when I'm working on. Not... Just not as much, he said. I'm kind of spontaneous, but I don't know how appealing that would be on a wall. When Reyes was still refining his style, he learned how to work with what he calls mistakes, like ink smudges or overspraying. I started learning how to work with the mistakes that I did, and then just kind of incorporated it, Reyes said. When I saw the guys working on the trains and stuff, I noticed that they didn't freak out. They just waited a few minutes for it to dry out and then come back and correct it. Learning to work with his mistakes helped Ray's create his own unique style. I said this is for me because no matter how hard I try to be as perfect and clean cut as I could, I just could never. But I just went for it. I said, you know what? I'm going to own this, Ray said. My mistakes are going to be what makes my art different, and that's what I've been running with ever since. There is an image of Danny Ray's standing outside of his mural with a caption, Artist Danny Rays poses for a portrait near his mural, Empowering Youth for Global Change, which can be seen on the building faced Cochrane Park at 2200 Avenue. Rays was one of four artists chosen to paint a mural near the First Avenue Trail. Our next story is titled, 70 Coins Removed from Alligator, by Marie Ducey. That is spelled M-A-R-J-I-E space D-U-C-E-Y. Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium is asking visitors not to throw coins into the water. Thereafter, an American alligator had to have 70 removed from his stomach. Thibodeau, that's spelled T-H-I-B-O-D-A-U-X, a 36-year-old leucistic American alligator, underwent a procedure Thursday to remove the coins before they could cause health problems, the zoo said in release. Alligators can stir up the coins as they rub their feet along the bottom of the water structures at the zoo, typical behavior in the wild when they are trying to find food. 
Veterinarians found the metal objects during a routine exam that is given to the 10 American alligators that live at the Mahoney King's Kingdom of the Night Exhibit. The exams consist of blood collection and radiographs, which are a result of decades of establishing trust with these animals through proactive training efforts that allow the animals to voluntarily participate in their own veterinary care. With the help of his training, Thibodeau was anesthetized and intubated to allow us to safely manage him during the procedure, said Christina Plug, that's spelled P-O-L-O-O-G, an associate veterinarian who led the procedure. A plastic pipe was placed to protect his mouth and safely pass the tools to access the coin, such as a camera, that helped us guide the retrieval of these objects. X-ray images afterwards for confirmed that all the objects had been removed. Fabido recovered well from the procedure and is back in his habitat. Though a procedure like the one on Thibodeau is not always common, it's a great example of what our animal care and animal health teams do every day across our campuses to provide excellent care to our animals, said Taylor Yaw, zoo veterinarian and director of animal health. For those for who's looking to make a wish, a coin wishing well can be found in the atrium of the Desert Dome. Two images are presented. The first is of Thibodeau, the alligator, and three zoo staff. The caption is, Zoo staff works with Thibodeau, who is trained to participate in his own veterinary care. The second image is of a container holding all of the coins found in the alligator's stomach. Moving on to our next story. Tree Thief Ordered to Pay $33,000 Restitution by Jared Strong A Northwest Iowa man convicted of felling one of the oldest oak trees in the state must pay tens of thousands of dollars of restitution for the tree and to replace dozens of others in a public wildlife area, according to court records. A jury found Jason Levitt Ferguson, 41, of Rolfe, guilty of felony, theft, and 50 timber violations late last year. He illegally cut down and stole trees from the Stoddard Wildlife Management Area in Pocahontas County, including a bur oak that was estimated to be 175 years old. The tree, at about 95 feet tall and 6 feet wide at its base, was thought to be about the size of the state record bur oak and was still growing. Ferguson had planned to use the trees to build a house and for firewood, court records show. Although Ferguson faced many years in prison for the crime, a judge sentenced him to probation last month and fined him about 25000 In a subsequent order, the judge recently ordered Ferguson to pay an additional $33,000 for restitution. About $25,000 of that amount is meant to compensate the state for the oak tree, and about 7000 will pay for the replanting of 55 trees in the wildlife area. Ferguson's attorney did not respond to a request to comment for this article. The attorney, the attorney had argued in various ways that Ferguson was entitled to harvest trees from public property for his basic survival needs. This story included a mugshot of a middle-aged man. Moving on to our next story, grants seek to enhance Iowa agriculture education. The Iowa Agriculture Literary Foundation awarded 175 grants to schools across Iowa to bolster the integration of agriculture into classroom instruction or after-school programs with an academic focus. The Agriculture in the Classroom Teachers Supplement Grants are designed to help teachers initiate new projects or expand existing programs that promote agriculture literacy, according to a news release. 
Grants can be used to fund lessons, activities, classroom resources, guest speakers, outreach programs, field trips, and other projects. Teachers received up to $250 each. These grants allow teachers to bring agriculture into their classrooms and connect students to real-world applications, said IALF Executive Director Kelly Foss. The grants are made possible through support from the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation. Council Bluffs award recipients were Lori Bancroft, Thomas Jefferson, Amber Brown, Lewis and Clark Elementary, Rob Hart Franklin Elementary, Brenda Irwin, St. Albert Catholic, Danielle Philman, College View Elementary, Rachel Shanks, Lewis and Clark Elementary, Kristen Vonham, Lauren Wilcox, and others. For more information, visit iowaagliteracy.org. Our next story is titled, States Project Money to Feed Kids. There is an image of around eight men standing in what looks to be a courtroom. The story is by Anathan Matisse and Geoff Mulvihill. Lower-income families with school-aged kids can get help from the federal government paying for groceries this summer unless they live in one of the 14 states that have said no to joining the program this year. The reason for the rejections, all from states with Republican governors, including philosophical obligations to welfare programs, technical challenges due to aging computer systems, and satisfaction with other summer nutrition programs reaching far fewer children. The impact falls on people like Ada Ben Allen, a single mom of five in Clarksdale, Mississippi, who makes too much to qualify for some public assistance programs. She could have received $480 in aid over three months this summer if her state participated. It would have helped us a whole lot, especially with these boys, Allen said. They're growing children. They eat a lot. Many states have rejected federal funds on principle or for technical reasons. In 2021, 26 states cut short the enhanced employment benefits people received during the coronavirus pandemic. 22 states have turned down the mostly federal-funded expansion of Medicaid eligibility to provide health insurance to more lower-income adults. A dozen of those states have reconsidered and expanded Medicaid. The summer EBT program, a response to increased child hunger when school is out, involves much less money. The federal government launched pilot versions in 2011, expanded it nationally during the pandemic, and then Congress made it permanent within a spending bill adopted in December 2022. States must, must split the administrative cost 50-50, and the federal government fund the, funds the benefits, which are expected to cost $2.5 billion this year and help feed 21 million children. Another 10 million eligible ki- kids live in states that turned down the funding. For each of three summer months, families with children in free or reduced-price school lunch programs will get $40 per qualifying child on an electronic benefit transfer, or EBT card. It can only cover groceries and food from farmer's markets. Family size determines the income limits. A family of three making under about $46,000 would qualify in most of the country. States had until the end of 2023 to decide whether they could join this summer. They can enroll in future years even if they skip it in 2024. Vermont plans to do that after replacing a state computer system. The spending measure provided some broad outlines a year earlier and the U.S. Department of Agriculture shared details with the states throughout 2023. But the interim final 
rules were not published until December 29th, timing that some states said proved problematic for deciding whether to join. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission said late rulemaking factored into its opting out, along with needing lawmakers to approve funding for the state administrative cost share. Texas lawmakers aren't scheduled to convene this year. Spokesperson Thomas Vasquez said via email that Texas would consider joining later. It's the only, it's the other way around in Tennessee, which opted into the lunch program for 2024, but doesn't plan to continue in 2025. Like leaders in other states, Republican government Bill Lee's office said the initiative is a pandemic-era benefit that other food programs already existed. But Food Research and Action Center, an advocacy group targeting hunger, has found that the main federal-funded summer nutrition program doesn't reach most qualified children. During the summer of 2022, it fed only one of every nine children served by the free or reduced-price lunch program. Nationwide, during the during the 2021-2022 school year. Wyoming Superintendent of Public Instruction, Megan Degenfelder, said that she turned down the summer EBT card funds because she wanted to prioritize the current summer meals program, which required minimal state funding. I generally prefer those kids' meals getting directly to the kids, she told the Associated Press. At the feeding sites, we know that's happening. Still, she said the summer sites in her rural state needed improvement. In 2022, they served about 9,400 summer lunches daily, which is only one-fifth of the daily average for free and reduced-price lunches in the 2021-22 school year. Six of Wyoming's 23 counties have no sites, and even the federal government last year started letting families take home a week's worth of meals for children. Wyoming sites offered in-person meals. Wyoming shared of administrative costs this year would have been about $1.1 million and about 690000 annually in the future, Defender said. Republican governments currently lead all the rejecting states, but Louisiana had a Democrat with one week left in his term when the deadline hit. In some places, the rejections have had a partisan edge. In Mississippi, one of the states with the most food insecurity for children, some 32400 children, including four of Allen's, would have been eligible. Republican government Governor Tate Reeves' office declared it an unnecessary big government problem, saying that if Washington, D.C. Democrats had their way, America would still be locked down, subject to COVID vaccines and mask mandates, and welfare rules would have exploded. Allen, who worked as a transportation dispatcher and scheduler, thinks Reeves' priorities are misplaced. She points to the state's implementation of an abortion ban in 2022. Why do you care so much about my uterus and how many babies I'm having or aborted? Allen said. Why is that a concern when I still have to feed this child, but you're not helping me do that? The rejections have drawn back lash. In Nebraska, Republican Governor, Governor Jim Pillen sparked a firestorm of criticism when he justified rejecting the money by explaining, I don't believe in welfare. But he reversed course and said the state would join the program after a Democratic lawmaker introduced a bill to require participation. He said he was swayed by hearing stories about hunger from high school students. Lisa Davis, a senior vice president of the No Kid Hungry campaign for Share Our Strengths, said she believes all the states can be persuaded to join in the coming years. Childhood hunger is one of the few issues that brings everyone together, she said. Officials in Iowa's two most populous counties are requesting the state-rejected funds anyway, though the program offers no pathway to fund local governments instead of states. 
In Iowa's rejection, Governor Kim Reynolds said it's not a long-term solution. An EBT card does nothing to promote promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an academic epidemic, the Republican said in a statement. But Crystal Fitzsimmons, director of the school program at Food Research and Action Center, cited research that families buy more nutritional food when their grocery subsidies increase. It's a missing opportunity when kids go hungry. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 22, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Derby Russell from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. We are now moving on to the obituary of Michael H. Hansen. Born February 28, 1955, passed February 18, 2024. Michael H. Hansen, age 68, of Modale, Iowa, passed away February 18, 2024, at Nebraska Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. Mike was born February 28, 1955, in Council Bluffs to the late Gerald H. and Donna Martin Hansen. He graduated from Underwood, Iowa High School in 1973. In recent years, Mike was a driver for Rail Crew Express. He was a member of St. Paul Lutheran Church, Neola, Iowa. Mike is survived by his sisters, Kimberly Hansen of Ralston, Nebraska, Christine Hansen of Bellevue, Nebraska, brother Derek Carey Hansen of Chester, South Carolina, and their children, Shane and Casey. Cremation rites have been accorded. A celebration of life service will be held Saturday, 11th, a, Saturday 11 a.m. at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Neola. Following the service, the celebration of Mike's life continues at Garcia's Family Mexican Restaurant in Underwood, Iowa. Memorial contributions will be directed by the family. Moving on to our next story, Storm It, Frame It. Creighton's win over number one Yukon was a picture-perfect night. Story by Tom Chattel. Storm It, Frame It. Pour it into a tall, chilled glass. Sip on this for a long time, Jay's fan. What a night. This is one nobody who is in the CHI Health Center will ever forget, and that might include the visiting former number one Yukon Huskies. This was different from a half hour before the 7.30 p.m. tip when the lower bowl was full until the very end, when there was a landslide of blue and white climbing over the wall to celebrate on the court. The stormtroops were careful to sidestep Teresa McDermott, the coach's wife who was standing on a chair with her phone camera pointed at the party on the crowd. Miss Mack had the right idea. Capture the moment. Hang it in every Blue Jay den from here to Aurora, Nebraska. Creighton 85, Yukon 66. A picture-perfect night. Historic for our program, said Coach Greg McDermott, who has authored a lot of history in his 14 seasons. This feels like a rival for other historic games. Best home atmosphere and best win since Seton Hall in 2020. The Big East title clincher on the edge of the pandemic. The fans knew. This was the first court storm since the Seton Hall Saturday afternoon four years ago. And while some might think it is too much, not here. A little fan spillover is allowed when you've beaten number one for the first time. And it's UConn defending national champs winners of 14 straight games. And it's coach Danny Hurley, the man that loves, the man the fans love to razz, the coach who loves to step on a throat when he can. When Creighton is doing the stomping, storm it, frame it.
It was a night of many memories. Jason Green's 2-3's defensive play of the game. Ryan Kalkbrenner outplaying Donovan Klingen and making a step-back 15-footer that Dirk Nowitz would approve. Francisco Farbarello knocking down a pair of threes, his only points of the game to kickstart a decisive run in the first half. 14 threes. So much Creighton defense against UConn's perimeter assassins. 3-16 from three-point range. And a 14-4 edge in bench points over UConn. And all those loud noises building on each other like a staircase up the NCAA tourney seed line. Most of those loud noises came courtside. Stephen Ashworth, number one in the program in your heart. Draining after three like three in a number one ranking. This one's for the little Clay Ashworth's two-and-a-half-year-old nephew who was taken to the hospital with a brain aneurysm. Uncle Steve had Clay's name on his wrist. The power of Clay, the power of belief. The power of a proud basketball team with something to prove to the world and maybe to itself. Is this what happened here on Ash Tuesday? Was this one game or was this the beginning of six weeks of this kind of Blue Jay basketball? This one didn't change much for Creighton's postseason standing. The Jays are now a solid number four seed, maybe too late to make a run at number three. But what does all that matter? It's the matchups that matter in the postseason, and maybe that was the story here Tuesday night. Going into the marquee night, Creighton's best win was Alabama. The Jays had some good games, nice wins at Seton Hall and Butler, but some other nights where the, sh- where the shooting and the defense were a little spotty and the depth unrevivable and non-existent. But my goodness, if Ashworth, who has looked more comfortable at this level the last several games, is going to do that going forward, that's big. If Green is going to contribute with big shots and defensive players off the bench at the power forward spot, that's even bigger. And if Creighton uses this big, big night as a springboard to another level, then some of us skeptics may have to reevaluate what we think the Jays can do in March. Who knows? Creighton men's basketball tournament predictions, February 21st. It might have been one of those nights where the ranking and the opponent and the effort and the crowd all came together in a perfect storm. It doesn't have to be anything more than that right now. Sometimes it's just enough that the coach's wife was taking photos, the players and assistants were dancing and hugging their way to the locker room, while the number one team in the country tipped their cap to the home team. And everyone who was there got a night that they can hang in the den of their memory. Storm it, frame it, never forget it, and nobody ever will. Accompanying this story is an image of the Creighton student section storming the court after the win over number one, UConn. Moving on to the next story, girls 4A8 regional final, a statement win. The images of around eight girls celebrating after a victory. Titans top warriors to clinch state tourney berth, story by Austin Heinen. It went as one would expect a regional final to go, but class 4A number eight Lewis Central edged past Norwalk on Tuesday night's class 4A region final in Council Bluffs. This is really special, Titans coach Chris Han- Hannah Fan said, this team has worked extremely hard to get here. We lost a couple of games early in the year, played a fairly tough schedule, and played extremely well since Christmas break. All the credit goes to the kids, but I also have to give a very special shout out to my assistant coaches. Hannah Fan continued, I do all the interviews and do all the talking, but those guys are why we are here. They also put in a lot of time. 
Dan Miller, Tom Hutchinson, and Coleman Molenix put in a heck of a lot of time, and the girls would tell you, too. We aren't who we are without them. The Warriors and the Titans battled back and forth the majority of the first quarter with two ties and three lead changes until the Titans scored the final four points of the quarter to take a 10-7 advantage. Those four consecutive points helped spark a 10-2 LC run that ran the, until the midpoint of the second quarter where a 6-2 Warriors spurt brought it down to three. Right after the Warriors brought the game back within a possession, Anna Stromheimer hit the first three of the night for the Titans to help her team maintain a two-possession lead at the break. The Titans kept the momentum by scoring the first five points of the third quarter to boost their lead up to number 11, to boost their lead to 11. The Warriors fought back to trim it down to six again, but another sequence, including Sydney Thine three, helped LC regain a double-digit advantage late in the third quarter. We know they'd make runs too, so we just treated it like any other game, Thien said. Either way, the game had to be played. We didn't let ourselves get nervous, and just like any other game, we stuck to the plan. The Warriors were not going to go down as easy as they cut Lewis Central lead down to three points, but Larson and Thien each hit a basket to push their lead back up to six. Norwalks would later trim the lead down to three again with less than a minute to play, but the Titans wouldn't allow the Warriors to get any closer. Norwalk is a really great team, and we knew they weren't going to lay down, Larson said. Bailey Birmingham is a great player. Their coaches are great, and they were ranked third earlier this season when we beat them. Now we got them again because we again proved to be the more dominant team. It was definitely nerve-wracking when they made a little bit of a comeback late. Lucy Scott said. My teammates, though, including Sydney Thien, shout out to her. She came out and dominated, and Brooke Larson also came out and dominated the boards. And when we needed baskets, they were the two to help us stay ahead. Larson led the Titans with 23 points, and Thien added another 18 points to the win. Bailey Birmingham led Norwalk with 33 points. After their second win of the season over Norwalk, the Titans will now return to the first state tournament for the first time since March 2020, where the Titans finished as the state runner-up. After going through some learning curves early in the season, it was a pleasing, emotional night that made all the lessons worth it. This is so amazing, Scott said. This is one of the best feelings I've had in my life. It means so much to me to do this with the team, and I've been with them all four years and some beyond. They're like my family. So to this with them so meaningful. There's so many feelings going through my head right now, Larson said. Some of us have been here before and knew how this game would go and the pressure and the environment that comes with it, but we embraced it. We worked our butts off every day in practice and I've never played with a group of girls who are more deserving of this than us. I've dreamed of playing at the well since I was a little girl, seeing all the teammates before us play. We've always wanted to be another one of the teams to play at Wells Fargo Arena. This is something we seniors have wanted to do forever, Thien said. We used to see the older girls do it, and we always told ourselves that we are going to do it. This feels amazing and unreal to finally make it happen. While a lot of work has been done this season to make the accomplishment possible, plenty of the work went into this years before the game. Every kid that stepped on the floor tonight did something special, and that's what it takes, Hannah Fan said. A lot of people have contributed to this. This doesn't just happen with us. There's been a lot of special people to help these girls, and now our largest class here at Lewis Central has made it a pretty special time here. 
Lewis Central will play Bishop Helen in the 4A state quarterfinals on Tuesday at 5 p.m. at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Moving on to the next story, Trainer Underwood. Moving on to the next story, Trainer. Underwood advances to Saturday sub-state finals. Story by Peter Birchnet. They won't be playing each other, but both Trainer and Underwood will be playing two A sub-state finals in West Des Moines after district finals wins on Tuesday. Trainer 73, Van Meter 63. Denson. The Cardinals, 20-3, were led by a huge effort from Jace Toms, 27 points, and Ethan Cons, 19, in the 2A-7 district final in Denison. An 11-0 run to the end the second quarter helped Trainer take the lead and create some separation going into halftime ahead of 31-22. The Cardinals maintained the forward momentum in the third and pushed the lead to 14 with less than five minutes remaining but the dogs didn't roll over. Cutting the deficient down to 69-63 to with 33 seconds left, Trainer held off the late charge and advances, and advances to face Grandview Christian at West Central Valley at 7 p.m. Underwood 61, East Sac County 51. Stewart. In the 2A district final, the Eagles 23-0 had a balanced scoring effort from Josh R- Ravlin 13 and Jack Vaught Van Fossen, who nearly had a triple-double with eight points, 11 rebounds, and eight assists. Competitive throughout, the, throughout, the Eagles pulled ahead to a 12-point lead in the fourth before the Raiders trimmed the deficient to 51-45 to with two minutes and 18 seconds left. Underwood sought out the rest to earn the win and advance to the 2A-8 sub-state finals against South Hamilton at Waukee Northwest. Moving on to the next story, welcome to Indiana basketball. Hoysier Gym, home of Hickory Huskies, still resonates with basketball fans. The story is by Tim Reynolds. There are two images, one of the Husky empty basketball stadium and a picture of Gene Hackman during the filming of the movie Hoysiers. Kingston, Indiana, the court is the same where Jimmy Chitwood played. The locker room is exactly as it was when Norman Dale coached. The wall separating the bleachers from the floor is still there. Things change. The Hosier gym doesn't. About 35 miles east of Indianapolis is a little town of Knightstown, which most people probably aren't too familiar with. Basketball fans, however, are likely very well of the place that brings more people into a town than anything else. A small brick building that the Hickory Huskers of the movie Hosiers call home. It's still there, still iconic nearly four de- four decades after the film's released, hosting more than 50,000 visitors and dozens of high school games each year. When you get that many people coming here every year, said Larry Lovell, one of the volunteers that keeps the gym running, you know you're doing something right. The movie ranked as the number one sports film of all time by Associated Press in 2020, was released in 1986. Gene Hackman starred as Coach Dale, a man who was given a second chance at coaching after his first one and first one ended for striking one of his players years earlier. Hackman famously thought the movie would end his career. He didn't think it would be a success. He was very, very wrong. The tale of the Huskers, a small-town team 
that in the movie took on the big city South Bend Central in the 1952 Indiana State Championship game and won in a David versus Goliath story with Chitwood, a sharpshooter who initially didn't want to play for the team. Hitting the buzzer beater to win the state title still resonates. It's an underdog story, a Cinderella story, one loosely based on the real-life story of school Milan winning Indiana's 1954 state championship. It's about basketball, obviously, said Brad Long, who plays Buddy Walker in the film, but it's about redemption, and any time you have a movie where the underdog does well and overachieves, it makes people feel good about themselves. That formula always works. It still does. The movie plays on a loop in the lobby of the building, which was Kingston's High's home gym until 1966. The court, which is meticulously maintained, has been down since 1936, and there isn't a single dead spot in Thwart Dribblers. Down the steep staircase at the far end is the Hickory Locker Room. People have wanted to repaint it over the years, but have smartly resisted because the faded white walls and scuffed-up gray floors is how it looks in the movie, and so it shall remain. There have been some upgrades, of course. The blackboards are glass, not wood, like they were in the film. There are digital scoreboards, electric heat was added to the locker room. The playing surface was slightly widened to make it conform to the current standards. That's it. I've been maintaining this gym since 1998, Lovell said. It's our pride and joy. The gym is in Knightstown, though the movie isn't about this town. The school enrollment of nearly 400, not quite the 64 that Hickory famously had in the movie, goes by the name Panthers, not Huskers. The Panthers don't play their home games in the Hosier Gym, and there have been a time or two where the gym and the school have disagreed where some items belong. Some items, like a long-abandoned victory bell, belong. It's displayed at the gym in a room filled with Knightstown memorabilia and not artifacts from the movie. The place remains open largely because fans keep visiting. It has been the site of everything from raising rallies to fundraising dinners. The court can be rented for $100 an hour and groups can come all over to play or just get shots up. It's always an honor to be back, actor Marius Balanus, who played Chitwood in the movie, said when the team was assembled in Knightstown for a 35th anniversary gathering a couple of years ago. Of the many lines in the movie that resonate, one, Welcome to Indiana Basketball. The line uttered by Dale as he fixes his tie before stepping onto the court for his first game as coach might stand out a bit more than most others. Thing is, the court isn't just about Indiana basketball anymore. High school teams from across the country come to play there now, and from that was a born new tradition. They leave a jersey behind, all signed by the players. They hang it in the locker room and other parts of the building. More than 300 of them now in a collection that's constantly growing. Some leave little notes behind on the jerseys as well. Kale Leach of Tallawanda High in Ohio hit a shot buzzer to give him his team a 48-46 to win there last year and scrawled game winder under his name and number. I envisioned it, Leach told the Southwest Ohio Sports Daily after his winning shot. There have been more famous visitors as well. LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony were there once as their NBA careers were starting. Posting at midcourt with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, Chris Mullen has gotten shots up there while Greg Oden and Mike Connell Jr. played there as high schoolers. The movie even got talked about at NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis. Commissioner Adam Silver and number one overall pick Victor Wembanyama were on stage together at a tech summit discussing how artificial intelligence can change the way people view the game. Part of their presentation included a chip from Hoziers, a movie that 
Wim Banyan has just been introduced to. It's based in Indiana, Silver told Wim Banyama. Parts of it were filmed here, right down the street. Maybe fittingly, there's still the whole David versus Goliath thing going on, just like in the movie. Newcastle, like Knightstown, part of Henry County, boasts the biggest high school basketball arena in the country. 8,400-seat Newcastle Fieldhouse. The Hosier Gym might hold 400. Tops. They'll always tell us that they've got the world's largest high school gym, Lovell said. And I said, isn't that amazing? In the same country, we've got the world'est and most famous. The caption to the first image from the movie is, Actor Gene Hackman plays Coach Norman Dale during filming of the final, final game in the movie, Hoosiers, at Hinkle Fieldhouse on the Butler University campus in 1985. The movie ranked as the number one sports film of all time by the Associated Press in 2020. It was released in 1986. The picture under it is a picture of the locker room. The caption is, The locker room downstairs in the Hosier gym, used by the Hickory Huskies in the movie Hosiers, remains largely unchanged from the way it was when the film was made in Knightstown, Indiana in the mid-1980s. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 22nd, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Darby Russell from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Re Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed, food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.